the various liturgical elements in our service. So I spoke on Isaiah chapter 11 with regard to the lighting of the candles and drawing our attention to Messiah, the light of the world. We took a look at Isaiah chapter 2, where we recite Micha Mocha uh, and speak of the law coming forth from Zion. Of course, a wonderful messianic passage with regard to the coming of Messiah, his reign as king, and his law going uh, going forth. Today, I want us to just take a look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where we recite, holy, 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 kadosh, 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 is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train or the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah is just a marvelous, marvelous prophet. I would dare say that if we did not have any other books of the Bible and had the, the prophet Isaiah's book, we would be okay. We would know everything about, maybe not with the specifics that we have now, but we would know everything regarding God's redemptive plan just by one chapter alone, Isaiah 53 or so. When we take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, we get a sense and a glimpse into the very character of God, which is really the core of his identity. I know that for most of us, we think of God as love. We think of him as merciful. We think of him as compassionate. But from the biblical perspective, and while all of those attributes or characteristics of God are true, his key attribute is his holiness. You may never have thought of this before, but it's the only attribute of God that is repeated. We never read of God being love, 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 although the Beatles did a good job with that. We never read of God being merciful, merciful, merciful. We never read of him being compassionate, compassionate, compassionate. But the only attribute of God that is repeated is his holiness. He is holy, holy, holy. And when I was a teacher I, and we would look at this passage with my students, I couldn't help but resist in saying that, you know, the seraphs who are pronouncing his holiness, they don't have a whole lot of lines to say. You know, they only have to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's their only lines. But they deliver them really well. You know, they've gotten really good at delivering the line. I just can't help but think of that, that there they are in heaven. We don't know if they say other things or not, but we know that they say this, and they say it well. Isaiah was a prophet about 750 years before the time of Messiah, and he ministered among four different kings in Israel. Uzziah was a king that reigned for 52 years. I was going to make another joke about our administration, but can you imagine if it was in leadership for 52 years? What would we do with ourselves? Those of us who are not happy with it, only for those that are not happy. But here is Uzziah, who for 52 years reigned as king. And he was a wonderful king. He was a king who followed in the footsteps of his predecessors, who did that which was right 
in the eyes of the Lord. He reinstituted temple worship. He dethroned the idols that Israel was becoming susceptible to. And he was one that had rebuilt towers in Jerusalem, one that had rebuilt the defenses of Israel, one that had enlarged their military might, almost to the degree to which it was at the time of Solomon. There's always a danger in becoming successful. It's the danger of pride. And that was Uzziah's problem at the end of his life. At the end of his life, as he surveyed all that he had accomplished, he became prideful. And he made a very serious mistake. He went into the temple in order to offer sacrifices to God. And of course, that was not the king's role. That was the role of the Levites. And when the Levites saw that the king had come in to offer the sacrifices, the most powerful man in Israel, they withstood him. And they told him that he ought not to do this. And that he ought to refrain from disobeying, if you just bring this down a little bit, disobeying God's command and instruction to his people. And as the priests began to argue with him, Uzziah became very angry. And in his fury, he railed at the priests. And at the point at which he began to rail at the priests, his forehead breaks out in leprosy. And the last 15 or so years of his life, he spends as a leper, quarantined from his people, but yet still reigning as king over Israel. A great life, a great man, one stumble, and he fell. It's almost as if that at that point, shortly after his death, Perhaps Isaiah is still reflecting on this man's life and his career and all that he had achieved. And perhaps he was thinking about that moment when Uzziah made this misstep. And Isaiah enters the temple, perhaps just to reflect on God, to seek compassion from God at this loss, this hole that now exists in the nation of Israel. And as he sits in the temple or stands in the temple, it's there that God now transports him. Not physically, but in a vision. And he transports him into the heavenly temple. There is a temple in heaven. It is the model from which, or I should say, it is the original temple from which the model was built in Israel. First the tabernacle, and then later the temple of Solomon. It was built on what was revealed to Moses with respect to what he saw in the temple, in heaven. And God dwells in this heavenly temple. And in this temple, Isaiah sees the Lord. This is also remarkable because Scripture is clear. No one can see the Lord and live. Isaiah, I should say Moses himself, desired to see God. And when on the mountain, he asked to see his glory. And the Lord told Moses that no one can see my glory and live. But I will permit you to see something of a reflection of my glory. Something of the backside of my glory. I can't allow you to see all of my glory because no one can stand in the presence of my glory and live. And when Moses was exposed just to a reflection of the glory of God. It just changed his whole countenance. 
so that when he came down from the mountain, he would cover his face so that the glow, the afterglow of the glory of God would not frighten the people of Israel or harm them or hurt them in some way. Thinking about that, it is amazing that every Sunday when we dismiss ourselves and receive the benediction, what do we pray? May His face shine upon you. And yet no one can see the glory of God and live. And yet that is the desire of our heart. To see God, is it not? And that is the promise that John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. That one day we will see God, even as He is. Now, I don't know the full ramifications of all that, but it's very fascinating, isn't it? That Moses wants to see God. He's told he cannot see God. Yet the blessing that the high priest would pronounce upon Israel and that we pronounce is, may His face shine upon you. And yet our heart's desire is to dwell in the very presence of God and see His face. So it's very confusing things, isn't it? But yet this is God's glory and His holiness made manifest. And when Isaiah sees the glory of God, he sees that the throne of God in the temple of God in heaven is surrounded by angelic beings. And some of those angelic beings are burning ones. Perhaps they have been created and have existed and localized in the presence of God so long that the afterglow and effects of God's glow is glow has just transformed their very character. We don't know, but they are different from cherubim. They're different from archangels. They're different from angels. They are seraphim or burning ones. They're ones that manifest, reflect the glory of God most perfectly in our creation presently as created beings. But one day you and I will put on immortality. And one day we will be ones who will reflect God's glory like we have no idea. If we think that the angels are, are awesomely glorious, imagine what one day we will be like when we are in God's presence and we are completely transformed as he desires to transform us. Remember, we are being transformed into the very character of our Messiah himself. We certainly get something of a glimpse because Messiah at his resurrection was, or I should say Messiah prior to his resurrection was transformed in his glory. And we see that on the Mount of the Transfiguration. And then we know something of his glorified state after his resurrection. But the seraphim are around the throne of God. And it says that they are above him. Verse 2, above him. They're not just circling the throne, but they're somehow hovering over the throne. And they are above him somehow flying because they are created with three pairs of wings. With two of them, they fly. And thus they do God's bidding. They do his service. And what has God created them to do but to fly around his throne? With two of them, they're covering their face because no created being can see God and live. His glory is so pervasive that it would be harmful for them. So two of their wings are used to cover their face from the very glory of God which they are pronouncing. 
and which they cannot see in all of its fullness. And then with two of them, they are covering their feet. We don't know what these beings are fully like, but we know this, that when individuals are called into the very presence of God, it is interesting that they're told to take off the shoes or sandals on their feet because the ground upon which they stand is holy ground. And thus Moses, when he sees the bush that is burning but is not being consumed, is told to take off the sandals from his feet. And that's because our feet attach us to the earth. And the earth is earthy or creaturely. It's a creation of God. It identifies us with God's creation. And nothing among God's created beings can handle the glory of God. And as a representation of that, Individuals that come into God's glory, such as Moses, are told to take off the shoes of their feet, almost to separate yourself from the creation of which you are a part. And thus the angels that are around the throne, they too are covering their feet because they are creations of God and are distinct from Him. And so all of these things are meant to exhibit and demonstrate just how utterly different God is from us. And then the text tells us that as they speak of the holiness of the Lord Almighty, it says that the sound of their voices, the very doorposts and the thresholds of the temple began to shake and the whole place filled with the very glory of God. But it was not only the temple in heaven that shook. Take a look at verse 5. Isaiah himself begins to shake. And he says, woe to me. He cried out, I am ruined. I think the King James says, I am undone. It's another way of saying, I'm becoming unraveled. Another way of saying, he is saying something like, I am disintegrating. In the very presence of God. To integrate means to come together. But he's falling apart as he stands in the very presence of God himself. And he cries out, woe is me. That's a really tough word in the scriptures. Because the word woe always introduces us to the coming judgment of God. And woes are not good things, especially when they are repeated. In the book of Revelation, woe, woe, woe to the earth after one of the angels begins to drop the judgment of God upon the creation. And they say it's good that those woes are out of the way, but there are more that are coming. Messiah himself will say woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Not just once or twice, but seven times. Woe, woe, woe. Judgment is going to fall. On you. And here Isaiah knows full well what woe means. But he's not just pronouncing woe, he's saying, Woe to me. This is a prophet who is now delivering an oracle. The prophets delivered oracles. Sometimes they were oracles of blessing. Messiah himself does this in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed 
are the peacemakers. That's an oracle in which he's pronouncing blessings to come on those who are characterized by such things. But if the prophet then says, as, I, as Messiah does in chapter 23 of Matthew, woe unto, that's a pronouncement of coming doom. And Isaiah knows it full well, for he will write of it quite frequently in his book. And so here in the very presence of God, where the angels are bringing glory and honor to him, and because of that, the place quakes and shakes, Isaiah himself pronounces a judgment on himself. Woe is me. The judgment of God is now about to fall on me. And he is frightened as one can be. And notice what he says. He says, woe is me. I am coming undone. I am unraveling. I am dis disintegrating. I am dislocating, if we could say that. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. What a funny phrase. I might have said, because I'm a man of unclean habits. I'm a man of unclean attitudes. I'm a man of unclean motives. I'm a man of unclean thoughts. But he says, I am a man of unclean lips. And I think the meaning that we're to deduce from this is given to us by Messiah himself. For he tells us it is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. What he says. And so Messiah is drawing our attention to the fact that the issue of sin is not merely in the things that we do, but it's in the very character that dwells within. Our failing is not just in how we act, think, or behave, but it has to do with the very core of our inner being. And when Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, he's saying that's because everything that comes out of me is contrary to the character and nature of God. I am alienated from him. I am separated from him. I'm not united to him. And as a consequence, the judgment of God is about to fall. And he knows it well. That's why Messiah says, blessed are those who mourn. Because when you come to grips with who we really are in the eyes of God, not in each other's eyes, because here we look pretty good. And we make ourselves look pretty good. So that when you come into my office, you'll see my diplomas. So I can look pretty good in your eyes. So that when you come to me and ask me questions, well, you'll see those things and say, well, he must have the answers. He must know what he's talking about. He must have it all together. So that when I dress, people see me that I'm not like all disheveled and, you know, something else. That's why the industry of plastic surgery is so big out here and in other places. We want to look good in each other's eyes. That we might impress people with what we are not. In the hopes that they don't find out what we really are about. And so when individuals see us outwardly, we hope they won't see our inner deformity. When people see us say things we ought not to say, we hope that they will not hear the root from which those thoughts, those words, and those attitudes are expressed. Isaiah now has himself fully uncovered before the living God. We are blessed 
Because God never fully reveals just who we are in His presence all at once. He lets us know gradually. So over the years we learn, well, I really am lazy. I really am selfish. I never thought of myself that way 10 years ago, but now I do. So God slowly, progressively, gently reveals to us our failings. And I dare say there are some days we get up and we say to ourselves, or I should say we say to God as we pray, forgive us of our sin. We can't even think of one. Because number one, God doesn't allow us to see just who we are all at once. It would be too devastating. But Isaiah did see himself all at once. And what does he say? I am coming undone at the seams. But the marvel of God's holiness is how it exhibits itself by his grace. Because look what God does. He doesn't just look at Isaiah and see him in this state of agony, but he does something about it. He says, then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. That is just so mind boggling. At the very moment of Isaiah's anguish, God dispatches a seraph and says, take one of the coals off the altar. Remember in the temple, in one of the coals on the altar of incense, which was meant to represent, at least on earth, the prayers of the people. Maybe a coal from the altar itself upon which the burnt offerings would be provided for uh, an atonement for sin. But it is so hot and it is so searing that even the seraph himself, who is a burning one, cannot touch it with his hands or wings or whatever he's using. We don't know that. But he has to use tongs to handle these coals or this coal. And then he places it on the lips of Isaiah. The lips are like one of the most sensitive parts of the body. We use that to kiss one another, to show feelings of endearment. And a live coal, so hot that the seraph himself can't handle it without the right instruments, is placed on this man's sensitive skin on his lips. That had to have been a painful moment. Because all of redemption involves suffering and pain. I've talked to this time before. But wherever there is going to be forgiveness, reconciliation, that's what we're talking about here. Isaiah needs forgiveness for his sin. Isaiah needs reconciliation for God because he's falling apart. But there is no reconciliation and there is no redemption. There is no healing. There is no integrating. There is no harmony where there is no pain and there is no suffering. Messiah himself vividly portrays this. In fact, Yeshua tells us not that he would die for our sin, as I've said in the past, but he said that he would suffer and die for our sin. His was not an easy death. His 
was an anguish of parting. And it was not just merely physical. It was of an eternal and spiritual nature as well as he experienced separation from his father. But the point here is that atonement is provided by the mercy of God, but all atonement involves some pain and suffering. No one comes to know the Lord if they've never really faced their need for him. And all of us who have faced our need for him have been rendered somewhat undone by what we've discovered within ourselves. Because we've all thought of ourselves as being pretty good until God starts peeling away the outer layers of who we really are. And we realize, I need God to forgive me of my sin. If you've lived with the Lord long enough, you know that because of our sin, we begin to forget that moment when it was a cry for mercy, when it was a cry for forgiveness, where there was a pain within that we know knew of our utter guilt and we knew that it needed to be forgiven. That's what I think Isaiah's experience portrays for us. The coal brought atonement, but it also brought to the fore the pain of his guilt. But once the guilt is placed on the altar, as it were, it is removed. And so what does the Lord say? This is also what always happens. Who will go from it? And Isaiah says, Hineni, here am I. Literally, it means behold me. No one can truly know the Lord, fully know him as much as is possible here on earth, and be devoid of serving him. All of us who have experienced the saving grace of our God, who has forgiven us of our sin and removed from us of our guilt, if we've really come to grips with that, the next response we say is, Lord, send me, and may I tell others of your grace that is available to each and every one of us. The holiness of God may reveal to us how utterly distinct we are from him and separated from him. And as we come to bear on that reality more and more, come to realize just how alienated from God we are. It starts there. And once we realize that, we learn that in the holiness of God is great mercy and grace. And he's provided a way for us to be united to him. And when he's united us to him, the response that is just a knee-jerk reaction is, Lord, send me, use me. I am your servants like the seraphs that are around the throne above. I'm here to go where you will go. For Isaiah, his calling was not an easy one. He was called to his own people whom the Lord said would not respond to him, would not understand a word he would say, would not agree with him, but it would be a constant 
pushing and pulling. There would be a remnant, to be sure. There would be a minority among your people who will respond, but the nation as a whole will not respond, at least not now and not yet. But Isaiah will write in Isaiah 53 that there will come a time when the nation will say, all of us like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah of Israel, the iniquity of us all. Perhaps during his ministry on earth, the people were not responsive. But there will come a time when all Israel shall be saved, Paul says, when the deliverer shall come from Zion. And what will be the catalyst for his coming? But their reciting the truths and experiencing the reality of what Isaiah himself prophesied in Isaiah 53, that they would acknowledge their sin and realize that the Lord laid on the Messiah of Israel their guilt, that it might be removed from them, like it was removed from Isaiah in this passage. If you've never had your guilt removed, it's the same way today. You need to come before the Lord, recognizing I have this need, and saying, Lord, place the coal on my lips. May I accept Messiah's death in my behalf, and may it transform and change me from the inside out that I might be something of a reflection of your own holiness and glory and that I might be a servant of yours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us this day. What an incredible experience Isaiah had. Father, it is a mixed bag of things. On the one hand, he has his sin removed, but on the other, he was made ruinous before the very presence of God. May we know, Lord, that when our fallenness is brought before our eyes, it is not so that we might be undone, but that we might be made whole by the redemptive grace you've provided in Yeshua's death in our behalf. When we are faced with our own sinfulness and failings, may we know that you have provided a way to be forgiven, a way for our guilt to be removed, a way for us to not disintegrate, but to be made whole and to become united with you. So, Father, may we truly, like Isaiah, humble ourselves before you and know that it's only by your grace that we might be spared, that we might be rescued, that we might be saved. And then, Father, for those of us who have had this experience, those of us who have come to know Messiah and the release of guilt, May we not hesitate to serve you. May we not hesitate to make you known to all those that we are able to share with. So be glorified our most 
Holy One. For it's in Messiah's name we pray.